0: On one hand, you're saying, don't worry, it's not really cancer, it's pre-cancer and it's in the milk ducts and nobody dies of this. But on the other hand, I have to meet with all these people and so I was really struggling with like how alarmed should I be about this diagnosis.
1: Welcome to Speak Up For Your Health. I'm your host, Dr. Arkel Giorgio. And in this podcast, I have conversations with patients about how they found their voice, figured out how to advocate for themselves, and finally got the medical care they needed. My goal, to give you ideas about how to speak up the next time you're getting care. This year, over two million Americans will be diagnosed with cancer. And whether someone has cancer of the breast, prostate, lung, colon, or melanoma, there are dozens of micro decisions that patients face. Is this even the right diagnosis, or do I need a second opinion? Have I explored all my alternatives? Is this the treatment I want, or is there something less aggressive we can try first? Do I want treatment right now, or can I wait a little bit? Is this the oncologist I want, the surgeon I want? What hospital has the best outcomes? And on and on. If you're listening to this podcast and you've had cancer, you may be thinking, I didn't need to answer all those questions. When I got the diagnosis, life was a blur and my oncologist just coordinated what I had to do next. But not all patients simply defer to their physician's recommendations. Some want to weigh in on every micro decision or at least every one that really matters to them because that's what gives them some peace of mind that their cancer care is the right care for them personally. That takes us to today's episode. Susan is currently 48 years old. She used her background in chemistry to launch a successful career in the biotechnology industry. For 12 years, Susan's work focused on cancer clinical trials. In 2017, when Susan was 42, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And Susan weighed in every step of the way. There are moments when Susan's complicated journey needs some context, so I will intermittently pause the interview and jump in with some comments. Enjoy the show. So Susan, your story starts back in 2017. You were 42 years old, you had a normal mammogram, but you did know that you had a history of dense breasts. Then sometime later, you said that you felt something that didn't feel normal. So why don't we start there and tell us what happened?
0: So I've actually had a history of having cysts, particularly in my breast area. And I have had at least four or five removed prior to this, but I found a new mass shortly after my mammogram that felt different. And so when it felt different, I made an appointment with my primary care physician to be seen and checked for it. So when I got in, uh, this is a woman, my physician I had been with for 18 years. So I trusted her significantly. We had a long, you know, close relationship and she felt it. And she said, you know, this doesn't really feel like cancer, but because you're concerned about it, she says, I really think this is nothing, but because, you know, you're concerned about it, I'll order an ultrasound for you. Okay. And you were comfortable with that next step? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted the ultrasound because in my gut, this was just something that I knew was different.
1: Okay. So you had the ultrasound. And it was inconclusive.
0: So it was inconclusive, but the radiologist came out and she said, you know, it's inconclusive. I really don't think this is anything, but she could tell I was really concerned about it. So the radiologist said, we could do a biopsy on this. I could take a sample and and maybe, you know, you
1: and I would both sleep better. So this is a good part of the story that it happened so quickly. <laughs> you know, I see so many delays in care that I'm going to celebrate when there aren't yeah, delays. I agree.
0: This was a radiologist who I feel really went above and beyond and, you know, took a sample right there. The biopsy came back as DCIS. So it's intermediate high-grade DCIS, which having a palpable
1: mass is very uncommon for DCIS. And did your primary care give you the recommendation on what to do or did she send you to an oncologist? I got a phone
0: call and she said, it's DCIS. It's stage zero. She said, don't worry, this will not kill you. We have a lot of options. And she said, you're going to be getting all these calls, you know, from like, I don't know. It was like the cancer team. It was like the SWAT team. And then you'll be meeting with the breast surgeon and you're going to get a medical oncologist. And I think I had to meet with a plastic surgeon and then a radiologist, radiation oncologist as well. And I just really struggled in that moment because I'm like, okay, great, stage zero cancer, okay. But on the other hand, I was really confused on why I needed to have all these appointments. On one hand you're saying, don't worry, it's not really cancer, it's pre-cancer and it's in the milk ducts and nobody dies of this. But on the other hand, I have to meet with all these people. And so I was really struggling with like, how alarmed should I be about this diagnosis? I would have rather her have just said, you know, it's DCIS, so I could go do the research and then tell me who I need to meet with. But because she downplayed it and because it felt kind of extreme, then it made me question what she was telling me.
1: Okay, some insights about DCIS, which stands for ductal carcinoma in situ. Let me be clear. Yes, DCIS is breast cancer, but it's very early and the cancer cells are completely limited to being within the milk ducts. But without treatment, 20 to 30% of women with DCIS go on to develop invasive breast cancer. And there's no way to know who that will be. So the recommendation is for all women with DCIS to get treated, either with a lumpectomy and radiation or to have a mastectomy. Unfortunately, Susan got some initial mixed messages about the seriousness of the diagnosis and really struggled with how aggressive she wanted to be. To complicate things even more, instead of having one doctor lay out all her options, she got three different treatment recommendations from the three doctors on her care team. So there was inconsistency in the messages that you were getting, and that was confusing. So it sounds, though, that you followed up and did have at least most of these conversations, if not all of them, with the different specialists. So ultimately, what treatment did they recommend?
0: I was told, well, we don't really believe your biopsy results. And we actually now think it's probably invasive ductal carcinoma that had already spread from the milk ducts, but they didn't believe that they had enough biopsy samples to confirm it.
1: Wow. So now it could be ductal carcinoma stage zero, or it could be more than that if they didn't get a good enough biopsy sample. That's correct. And then how did they decide? How did they make a recommendation and how did they lay it out for you? Because the treatments are really different.
0: Well, it depended on who I spoke to. So my medical oncologist that I met with, she was very conservative. um, So because I was under 45, Because I was, you know, she said, you're African-American. We think we nearly need to be really aggressive around this. And even though it was DCIS, how she laid out treatment for me was more like, we might need chemo. We're going to need to wait till you do surgery and we get final biopsy. And these are the possible chemo regimens you could go on. And it just, I was like, whoa, what the heck? I just was told I had DCIS and now I might have to have chemo. So I got one message from her. I go to the breast surgeon and I'm told by her, well, we could do lumpectomy followed by radiation. And I was just really frustrated in the sense of, gosh, like I have DCIS and we don't know if it's going to progress or not. And now I may have to do the lumpectomy. I wasn't concerned with it was the radiation. Wow. My plastic surgeon was saying, I think you should just get a mastectomy and I'll rebuild your breast for you just get rid of it. Just get rid of, you know, any cancer that's in there.
1: So it was a lot of options on the table. Sure. Did they ever come together and align around a single recommendation for you? No. So
0: I actually um, ended up deciding to go get a second opinion because I had all these options. I could tell that they were not aligned in their thought. I was at a community hospital at the time. I went to a different medical oncologist within that same group who was a little bit less conservative. And when you have DCIS, there's very different thoughts and like how aggressive or not aggressive you need to be because they don't know yet which ones will progress into something that becomes life-threatening. I got a different opinion from her. I felt kind of more comfortable, but then I said, you know what? I think I want another opinion. So I started looking online, social media. I actually went to Facebook and started joining every breast cancer group I could find on there and looked, particularly for ones that were DCIS, and just perusing the pages to see what other people had done. And I knew at that point, for me, I did not want to go most aggressive treatment options. And, you know, a lot of that stemmed from. My concerns around getting a secondary cancer is like, I wanted to be treated with the minimum amount (laughs) to hopefully take care of the cancer that I had and not cause a
1: secondary cancer. And the secondary cancer you were concerned about was? It could be from radiation. Okay. You know, while it's low,
0: statistically it's low, right? Whether or not it impacts you is binary. You either get it or you don't. Okay so,
1: so you were afraid of the complications of aggressive treatment, absolutely. And especially if you didn't need it. Sure. absolutely. I want to pause a little bit and talk about going to Facebook. And so many of us, of course, use social media. It's such a part of our culture. But I wonder, as an as a healthcare executive, how were you able to sort out where to go on Facebook? Which groups to join that would be credible? and supportive versus those that would be a source of misinformation. And what you didn't need any more of was misinformation. So how did you sort that out? You're right. I mean, there's some
0: pages that were more scientific. It was really just by perusing the pages and looking for people who were commenting that I thought I might resonate with or what they were saying. And then quite often I would reach out to them directly. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which group it was anymore, but there was somebody talking about more on the minimal treatment side. They had posted an interview that had been done by a local oncologist at UCSF. And I immediately knew I wanted to see her. Given my background and having worked in drug development, I went home and went to clinicaltrials.gov
1: to look up exactly what that study was. And so you were open to a clinical trial. Were you open to it because of your biopharma, biotech expertise, or were you just looking for anything that would be less aggressive?
0: Both. (laughs) Okay. So I, I don't know how to put this in words, but really in my heart, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to die, and I know that sounds extreme, but if I'm going to die, I want to be part of something that gives women better options. Wow. And my primary care doctor, like I said, we had had a really close relationship for 18 years. And they were like, why would you go into a clinical trial for this when we have options that can treat you? And I'm like, because I don't like these options, right? If I do have DCIS, you know, there's no different option really for DCIS. You're getting the same treatment options as if your cancer was invasive. So that was part of my giving. And then also was super curious on the scientific side, given my background.
1: Participating in a clinical trial is an alternative doctors rarely bring up, unless they are the trial investigator or you are at the end of the road. But they are something to consider, and especially if you feel unsure about what path you want to take. Keep in mind that all institutions that do research involving people must, by federal law, have an IRB, an institutional review board that oversees every trial, makes sure the risks are as low as possible and are worth any potential benefit. And you can leave a clinical trial at any time and for any reason. So can you describe what the intervention was in this clinical trial that was so much less invasive and aggressive than what you had been recommended to receive?
0: Yeah, so it was two localized injections of pembrolizumab. So it's a checkpoint inhibitor in an effort to try to change the tumor microenvironment and get your immune system to recognize the tumor.
1: So it was two injections. Did they do a lumpectomy as well? Yeah, so I had
0: two injections and then I opted for a lumpectomy after. And I actually did my lumpectomy. I asked to stay awake. Because I had had so many benign cysts removed from my breast previously, they were all done in an office. So I'm like, if it's this size, which is similar to a size that I've had removed before while I'm awake, I couldn't understand, well, if that's really what you're doing, then I don't need to be asleep for that.
1: Yeah. Did anybody give you a hard time about that? Or did they disrespect Um, it? One
0: breast surgeon refused. And then another one agreed. She said I was the first person who had ever
1: asked that but she would do that for me. You know, when we talk about expressing your preferences and priorities, there's so many nuances to that. It doesn't always mean, do I get the treatment? Do I not get the treatment? It could be, it's a preference between, do I have this under anesthesia or do I not have it under anesthesia? Because there's so many decision points in any healthcare journey that you can weigh in to those that are important to you. And that clearly was important to you. I'm assuming that what you got out of it was you just trusted that if you were awake, you would have more information.
0: I just wanted to be more aware of all the steps in the process.
1: So you got these injections, you got a lumpectomy, and for that phase of your treatment, how did that all play out? Um,
0: When I had my surgery, I did not get clear margins. And I don't know if this was the right decision, to be honest, but the decision at that point in time was we would not, because it was DCIS, they would not go back in to take more to try to get clear margins.
1: And so, for anybody listening, not having clear margins means that there are still tumor cells somewhere in the tissue surrounding where they took the lump out, but they didn't take it out in its entirety. And tumor cells have a tendency to reproduce out of control and become invasive. And so, that's That's what the worry is when you don't have clear margins. Yeah. But you decided to not do anything more and wait, watch and wait. Yeah, that we would do
0: scans every six months. Okay. Because I had also just spent four months, right, from, there was no growth, basically. The lump did not get any bigger in that four-month period. So the idea of, well, we'll do scans every six months and we'll just watch, you know, we'll aggressively watch you. I said, okay. I was okay with that.
1: When Susan told me this part of her story, I felt really uncomfortable because based on the evidence, she may not have received the standard of care that would help prevent developing invasive breast cancer. Let me explain. When you have a lumpectomy, the goal is to get negative margins, meaning that there are no detectable cancer cells left at the edge of the incision because cancer cells on the edge of a tumor can be just as aggressive as cancer cells in the middle of a tumor. So unless you get the whole thing, you aren't decreasing your risk of invasive breast cancer. Now it's possible that Susan simply didn't want to do anything more. And of course, that's her choice. But I worry that no one laid out all the facts that radiation therapy decreases the risk of invasive breast cancer by 50% especially in the presence of positive margins. Did you have peace of mind with that decision? And in retrospect, do you wish you had made a different decision?
0: Well, when I had my recurrence, I absolutely felt, wished I had made a different decision.
1: So let's let's get to that. Two years later, 2019, you feel another lump and your surgeon said, it's nothing again. Yeah. And I had another lump, but this one felt different than the first lump. This one was much
0: more closer to the surface near the surgical site, but nobody could figure out what it was. It was it was troublesome to me, particularly in the location. But I knew it didn't feel like that first one. So I did. I went in and they said, Oh, it's nothing.
1: Maybe um, some scar tissue.
0: A, yeah, they thought it was scar tissue, or maybe it was like, you know, a, a suture or something that was still in there. In retrospect, I wish I had been as strong of an advocate I been in some of the earlier phases and said, you guys either give me an ultrasound or just test this, right?
1: How long did you have that lump before they did something?
0: Oh, so I had that lump in 2019. Nothing happened till 2020. That lump got bigger. And then I went back in again and I said, I'm really concerned, it's changing, and now it's bigger. I called my oncologist directly on the phone. Because I had been trying to go through the front desk, but I knew she's super busy. So I had her cell phone number and I called her directly and I was like, I'm really concerned. She calls and we talk and she ordered an ultrasound and a biopsy for me. She's like, just so that we can put this to rest, that it's scar tissue and you, you basically, you know, won't continue to be worried. She didn't think it was anything. And it came back as IDC. It was invasive now.
1: Okay. So again, translation... It was starting to metastasize. Yeah. I
0: needed to do something. This was the strong recommendation I was getting. I opted, again, I went back to support groups at this point, but this time I got a a different type of support group. I didn't go back to Facebook at this point. I went to, um, I heard about a group called Bay Area Young Survivors and I immediately reached out to them and joined a support group and started talking to people about, you know, what it had been like if they went through radiation. And I also was considering mastectomy. Now, my doctors never offered mastectomy to me, but I I knew, you know, the two choices are lumpectomy and radiation or you get mastectomy. So I started researching mastectomy. For me, I was considering mastectomy, single mastectomy and going flat. And I found some people in the group that had went flat and they were saying, you know,
1: aesthetic flat closure. I I learned all the things to ask for. So I got some statistics and for women that are, you know, have the choice between lumpectomy and a mastectomy, only 65% of women believe that they were given all of their options. Most of them are only told that they can only have a lumpectomy. And the other option just isn't even discussed. Of the women that decide to have the mastectomy and go flat without Getting reconstruction, which is a cosmetic component of it. It, There's nothing therapeutic about it. 83 to 84% of those women are really happy with the result. 74% are satisfied with cosmetically how they feel about the outcome. But yet, most of them, many of them felt completely unsupported by their doctors and their surgeons in going down that path.
0: Yeah. You know, I think after I I kind of was learning from this group around what the different options were, I knew for me that I wanted aesthetic flat closure. And so then I went back to Facebook and looked for flat groups. And there's actually quite a few. What do you call it? Like half flat or single breasted beauties, I think is one. Yeah. (laughs) So I went in these groups and, you know, I I got to see pictures, I got to talk to people. And I just knew that was the right decision for me. So I went back to my doctors and um, they didn't want to do it. Did they say why? Um, because I was told I would be disfigured. And they didn't understand, they thought I was a perfect candidate for reconstruction.
1: Because they would see you as disfigured, but yeah, they often forget that you might not see yourself as disfigured. That's right. Yeah. That's where the controversy lies.
0: Yeah. I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is how I explained it to them. I was like, look, I'm, you know, I was in my late forties, mid to late forties at that point. I've already had children or a child. I have a child. I've already breastfed, you know, Um, I've already had multiple surgeries now. And I did not want to take on the risk of an infection or having to get the implant removed. I didn't want to spend any more of my
1: time in surgery for something that was cosmetic. And I hope that this didn't happen to you, but What I was reading some studies about is that when patients insist on a flat closure, the doctor is not supportive, you have the surgery and they wake up not having a flat closure and they leave extra skin, which is somewhat disfiguring Yeah, because they really think you're going to change your mind. Yes. (laughs) Did that happen to you? That did not happen to me,
0: but I had already been warned about that. And it is very sad to see the number of pictures that would be posted in these groups And they were just had surgery. And I said, is this an aesthetic flat closure? I asked for this, but look at how I look. And I know I'm not healed yet, but I don't think that's what I got. And they are devastated. Yeah. So I had been told, you know, again, by one of the support groups, like to ask specifically for aesthetic flat closure and to take in a picture of what you wanted. So that's what I did. And it was through negotiating finally, that they finally agreed to do it.
1: Wow. And how was the outcome? I was very
0: happy with it. Good. You know, I mean, I've had to have a scar revision because my skin type tends to keloid, but I don't regret that decision at all. That's great. And it's four years later. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Oh, absolutely. Um, I still feel like I'm, you know, adjusting to cancer life and missing the old (laughs) pre-cancer days, but overall I'm, I'm doing well. So I'm on tamoxifen and it definitely, I think anything that messes with your estrogen definitely can cause
1: some brain fog among other symptoms. But for me, those are the most troubling. So looking back, Susan, you know a lot about healthcare. You know a lot about biology and pharmaceuticals. And now you know a lot about breasts and breast cancer. Is there anything that you wish you would have done differently? You know, I
0: think everything is like you live and learn right? We can't go back and change things, but certainly, I mean, you go into the next event wiser, at least you hope. And so I think if I had went back, I may have considered a mastectomy sooner. Okay. Now I really, and again, everybody has to make their own personal choice. And I think, you know, all of our relationships with our bodies and the stages of life we're in is very different. For me, my partner kept saying at the beginning when I had DCS, why don't you just, you know." remove them. <laughs> and I wasn't ready at that point to remove them. I just thought it was, you know, over, it was too much. But having now been through chemo, multiple surgeries, you know, I think I I, I might, I, I would never want to go through chemo again. I would have made the decision to have a mastectomy sooner just to avoid chemo.
1: Have you thought about having a mastectomy on the other side in a prophylactic way, you know, a lot of women with breast cancer do, do make that choice. It's not necessarily considered the standard, but certainly women choose to do that. Have you thought about that?
0: I actually have, you know, originally I definitely went in more with the mindset of doing the minimum. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, after having went through chemo, and I feel like the lasting effects of that, You know, it would be for me horrific to have a more aggressive kind of cancer in the other breast. So I I have been thinking about that.
1: Susan's story is a good example of the twists, turns, and complexities of cancer treatment. You can have these decisions made for you by your doctors and take the chance that they know what's important to you, or you can weigh in. The key takeaway from this episode is weigh in, with information. Weigh in only when you know the statistics. Don't be sidetracked by words like, quote, this won't kill you, or quote, the best treatment is get the numbers on how often this cancer progresses. Compare the actual risk and benefit of each treatment option, including the option of doing nothing. Weigh in after knowing all the alternatives, including clinical trial alternatives. As I mentioned, doctors typically don't even know what clinical trials you may be eligible for, so you may have to research it yourself. There's a site called clinicaltrials.gov that you can search. I'll add the link to the show notes. And weigh in with insight and support from a patient care community. An online community is usually the easiest way to connect with people who share your health condition. I got a preview to a great new book by Susanna Fox, who is considered the expert in the value of peer-to-peer communities. It's called Rebel Health, and I'll put a link to her book in the show notes. Finally, I hope you remember that Susan had to convince her doctors to do additional testing on the lumps she felt. And twice they went from, this is nothing, to this is serious. If there ever was a story convincing you to advocate for yourself, this is it. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Speak Up For Your Health. If you enjoyed it, I hope you leave a rating and review, recommend this podcast to friends and family, and share the link on social media. If you have your own story about finding your voice and advocating for yourself, share it with me. I'd love to hear it. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Speak Up For Your Health is produced and edited by Jenny Lee Park and myself, Music is by Alex Tepper. Cover art is by Sean Sutton. Marketing and social media is by Shelby Epstein.